I'm no mercenary. Nobody pays me. And if I think somebody owes me something, I take it. Welcome to Arnie Geddon. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Tony G. And we are here this week with 1985's Red Sonja. Tony, this is the third movie in the Schwarzenegger Barbarian Trilogy. What is it about? Well, Cam, I'm glad you asked. It's about a young woman uh, with red hair who... A mullet. Party in the front. <laughs> no, what is it? What is the saying? The business in the front, party in the rear? That's it, yeah, yeah. That's right. Well, and she spurns the advances of an evil queen. Uh, the queen slaughters her family. Uh, she goes to learn how to sword fight. And Turns out it's pretty easy. Yeah, it's pretty simple. And then there's a, a talisman. Um, that, uh, anyways, a talisman. you, you got to see this film, folks. Uh, I can't do it justice here. It can pretty much summed up in a sentence. Evil queen has weapon of mass destruction. She must be stopped. Yeah. And so along comes like Arnold as Conan, I mean Kalidor. <laughs> and he teams up with Red Sonja and they put together a motley crew of uh, mostly idiots. Yeah. And, and go to stop the queen. Yeah, it's it was an awful lot like Conan the Destroyer. Right. Uh, um, but, you know, with Bridget Nielsen. Now I'm curious, growing up, you know, you obviously are a student of Schwarzenegger, right? Like you basked in the classics. <laughs> sure. Was this a movie you watched at all? Um, I probably saw it once or twice, but uh, to be honest, I hadn't watched it in, uh, many years. Um, so how about you? Uh, I watched it once. I was probably in my early twenties and there was a couple small gaps in sort of my prime Schwarzenegger filmography. Um, you know, I, obviously I'd never seen the villain or Hercules in New York or whatever, but I wasn't as concerned with those. I just wanted like the prime era, Conan onwards. And so I rented a few, I think I, I watched Conan the Destroyer, which I hadn't seen, and then I watched Red Sonja, and there may have been one other, uh, that may have been it actually, but I watched Red Sonja and I was not impressed, but I was thankful it was only 88 minutes. Yeah, I mean, I don't remember being particularly disappointed or impressed right. by it, um, but uh, you know, needless to say, I didn't feel the urge to pick it up again with any regularity. Now, you are a Robert uh, E. Howard fan. That's uh, right, He yeah. created Conan, of course, as we talked about in our Conan the Barbarian episode. And when we do our Kevin Sorbo episode, uh, he also did Call the Conqueror. Right. Now, he created Red Sonja. Um, were you familiar with that character at all from your experiences with Howard? Uh, to my knowledge, he uh, didn't really create Red Sonja. Yeah. Uh, I'm also a big... Conan comic book fan. Um, to my knowledge, the the person who was kind of in charge of that back in the seventies, Roy Thomas. Yeah, it was Roy Thomas and uh, Barry Windsor Smith were behind. Yeah, Red Sonja. Oh, okay. Yeah, that uh, Red Sonja was originally uh, a Conan sub character, and she kind of uh, came in. But to my knowledge, it wasn't wasn't Robert E. Howard that uh, really had anything to do with her. Yeah, he created a character, Red Sonja of Rogatino. Uh, and that was in a 1934 short story called Shadow of the Vulture. But 
different origin, different kind of background. Um, Roy Thomas and Barry Windsor Smith um, obviously created a whole new story for her. And she became kind of a minor, major <laughs> Marvel character, um, I guess. But and she was also a combination, actually, of Howard's uh, Dark Agnes de Chastelon. Does that mean anything to you? No, it doesn't, okay, interesting. doesn't ring a bell. I was, I was interested because uh, when the movie starts off, it's based on a character by Robert E. Howard. And I actually... yeah. I actually didn't didn't even know because I thought if this was going to be a Robert E. Howard based film, why didn't they just have Kaladar as Conan the Barbarian? Excellent question because they didn't credit the Marvel writers. So obviously this was based. Uh, maybe they didn't have the rights to Marvel, so they just had the rights to the Howard version. So they kind of invented their own story, leaving the Marvel stuff on the wayside. But they obviously didn't have the rights to Conan either, because there's yeah this character would have been Conan mm-hmm. uh, if they'd had the license for it. Yeah, because the version of Red Sonja, I think people know, debuted in Conan the Barbarian number 23 in 1973. Um, and did you know, in uh, just not too many years ago, in 2011, she was ranked first in Comic Buyer's Guide's 100 Sexiest Women in Comics? No, I did not know that. So, I guess fans haven't forgotten her. Who are these fans? I've never, I've never met anyone who talks about Red Sonja. Who are, when you're like, who is the most attractive woman in comics? I can't think of someone saying, well, it's probably Red Sonja. Yeah, the the comics buyers guide uh, people were really into Red Sonja. I think my only experience with Red Sonja though was um, there was like a mini series Spider Man meets Red Sonja in I don't know the. Tw- 2006 or 7 or something sounds really good yeah i bought the three issues and <laughs> really I don't, I don't think i liked any of them i was like yeah whatever how could that possibly be good that's not a it good, wasn't good it's it, not a good idea it was during my kind of obsessive comic buying period where like anything spider-man i would just buy and so like i bought it read it and was like that was crap <laughs> just you know forgot about it completely but i do have it somewhere in my shelves of comics i'm surprised you didn't break it out for this episode i know but, I mean, they must have really thought Red Sonja could unlock, you know, great glories for them. Yeah, they were because... like, this, this character has legs. <laughs> and those legs have legs. <laughs> and so they decided, I guess, to follow up Conan with this. And they got Richard Fleischer to direct it. Richard Fleischer's a bit of a catch. Because he did um, some real classics of, like, sci-fi and fantasy. Uh, he did um, Soylent Green. He did 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. He did Soylent Green. I didn't know that. He did. He did uh, Fantastic Voyage. Uh, he did Narrow Margin, which is a fantastic film noir. Um, he also did Conan the Destroyer. I think at this point, uh, Richard Fleischer was kind of in his latter years. This was near the end of his, of his career, which maybe explains a couple things. Yeah, I mean, you kind of got the impression, though, that um, this movie was made by people who owed Dino De Laurentiis favors. Right. Yes, the mega producer, Italian guy, known for kind of making schlocky B-movies on low budgets, but Mm -hmm. somehow, like, opening them in, like, wide release (laughs) and making them into event films. I I don't really know how that worked. So, Fleischer was there. Uh, Obviously, uh, Arnold was there. Yeah. Yeah. uh, Sandal Bergman playing the evil queen. Yeah, and you had like co-written by uh, George MacDonald Fraser, who the name probably means nothing to anyone really listening, but he was Fleischer's uh, long-term collaborator, and he wrote like the Three Musketeers and the Four Musketeers, which Fleischer directed way back in the day. Hugely popular swashbuckling epics, like really beloved and generally regarded as really good movies. Now... Originally, they wanted to give Sandal Bergman the lead role of Red Sonja. And for those of you who uh, don't know, 
Uh, Sandal Bergman played Valeria in the original Conan the Barbarian. Actually won a Golden Globe for it. Right. Well, they wanted her to play Red Sonja, but she thought it was too close to Valeria. And so she said she wanted the evil queen. And so what they have is uh, an amazingly confusing film, which looks and plays exactly like Conan the Barbarian or Conan the Destroyer. It was starring the two main characters from Conan the Barbarian, but has nothing to do with Conan the Barbarian. Uh, except, I suppose it is, they're both supposedly based on a Robert E. Howard book. Correct. Um, so it's it's confusing. It took I think a lot of people are confused uh, who haven't really seen Red Sonja uh, in a while or at all that uh, <laughs> it isn't an Arnold Schwarzenegger Conan movie. It doesn't really make any sense. And... I think audiences picked up on that because it opened in the summer of 1985, first week of July, I believe, and um, it uh, went on to grow $6.9 million. And in today's <laughs> dollars, it's still not a lot. It's like $12 million, <laughs> which is really nothing. Now, to be fair, it did have the misfortune of opening up against another little movie called The Same Weekend called Back to the Future. (laughs) (laughs) But it didn't just get clobbered by Back to the Future. Uh, It opened at number nine in its opening weekend, right behind the Clint Eastwood film Pale Rider, Rambo First Blood Part 2, Cocoon, Emerald Forest, St. Elmo's Fire, The Goonies, and Fletch. Man. (laughs) 85 was a good year for film. Yeah. And a bad year for Red Sonja. (laughs) Um, ultimately, for the end of the year, it would rank number 105 on the box office. 105? Really? Yes. You looked that up? I did, and it was sandwiched between... Holy smokes. It was sandwiched between two <laughs> movies. See if you've heard of these. Transylvania 6-5000 beat it. Um, I think I've actually seen that. Is that, a, is that a Hammer movie, maybe? Hammer Horror? I can't remember. I, I don't know. It has a name that reminds me of that. But, uh, and then it just beat, here comes the Littles. That one I haven't seen. <laughs> to be fair, it did beat Day of the Dead, the George Romero third uh, zombie movie, which is really great. That's okay. Well, it's good. Yeah. Um, and it won a Razzie Award that year for Worst Actress. Yeah, I knew that. And it was nominated for Worst Supporting for Sando Bergman, and also Worst Newcomer for... Br- Bridget Nielsen? Yes. Not uh, Ernie Reyes Jr.? He should have been nominated. We'll get to him in a minute. Okay. Good lord. Um, Schwarzenegger has called it the worst film he ever made and says to punish his children, he makes them watch it. Ten times. Now, do you think it's the worst Arnold Schwarzenegger movie? Um, I don't know if I'd go that far, having uh, done The Villain. Mm. Uh, yeah. And some of his other earlier stuff. Yeah. I don't know. We'll put it this way. I mean, like I've said before, even the worst Schwarzenegger movies are amongst the best movies. Right. But I would not put this amongst the best Schwarzenegger movies. (laughs) Now, Red Sonja obviously died at the box office big time. Really, really died. Um, But plans were underway to try and get Red Sonja back into theaters. It seems like she's cursed no matter what. Um, In, like, 2009, Robert Rodriguez wanted to launch a Red Sonja comeback movie starring Rose McGowan, who he was dating at the time. And uh, he decided to do this right after Grindhouse came out. And he just couldn't get anything going. And ultimately he left. And then for a little while, um, Megan Fox was attached. 
and that was for a short period of time. And then Simon West, who directed Con Air and I think Expendables 2, um, was attached to do a version of it with Amber Heard, who I think would have been okay casting, but that fell apart too. Uh, last we heard in 2015... That they should, that's what they should call the sequel. <laughs> last we heard? Uh, no, the, the Red Sonja. Uh, that fell apart too. <laughs> in 2015, they hired a writer named Christopher Cosmos to write a new version of Red Sonja. Nothing has been heard since, but I did a searching on Christopher Cosmos. He has one credit to his name. It's not a writing credit. He, <laughs> he was the assistant to Mr. Bender on the Arthur remake. <laughs> <laughs> well, Chris, if you're out there listening... Say uh, hi to Mr. Bender. Uh, I wish you luck. <laughs> so, let's... I think it's fairly safe to say that Red Sonja is probably not going to go charging into glory anytime soon. Which, it's kind of weird how they're, they're doing that. We were talking about this before we started watching the film today. Um, they just seem to be remaking, or trying to remake... Movies from the 80s that nobody really wants to see. Yeah. Um, so, you know, if I was a if I was a producer and I was trying to decide what to spend my uh, $170 million on, uh, probably the movie that finished 105th in 1985 <laughs> wouldn't be my first remake of choice. And would you say, you know, because we were talking, when we had that conversation, we were talking about like the Point Break uh, remake and Red Dawn remakes that died at the box office. But I mean... Those movies have a certain amount of, like, brand value. Do you think Red Sonja has any name value? Well, she is uh, the most attractive woman in comics. That is, I guess, that's quite true, actually. I mean, I guess the, they're obviously going to launch it off the comic character, not the not this movie. Well, when, the, when uh, I know that if they do ever do a remake, I'll be there in full uh, Red Sonja cosplay. If they do a new version, do they give Bridget Nielsen a cameo? I like how you didn't even blanket that. You... <laughs> well, I know you'll be there. I'll be there too. Yeah, we're in... you, you can be Kalidor. I will be Kalidor. Okay, I good. Mean, obviously, I look like Kalidor anyway. So <laughs> Let's not get out of control. <laughs> you look like Falcon. <laughs> so let's get to the actual movie. Uh, yeah. This great classic sure. of 1985. Sure, and for, for those of you who you're just tuning in for the first time... Uh, you know, which we'll know if our viewership goes up to four, uh, is we are going to be talking about the movie, so if you haven't watched it, stop right here, get to your computer or television, and watch Red Sonja, because we're going to just ruin the whole thing for yeah. you right now. Is there that much to ruin? Uh, no. <laughs> so, <laughs> let's get to the movie itself. Revisiting it, how do you feel about it now? Well, um, I actually feel better about it than I thought I would. Uh, I was really dreading doing this one. Did you perk up a little bit when you found out it was only like eighty-eight minutes? I did. I did. I, <laughs> I, um, yeah, I don't think I, I don't think this movie would have fared well if it had been uh, you know one hundred and twenty-five minutes. Right. Uh, I feel the same way. Actually, that, that's one thing about this movie. I actually felt watching it that it was a movie that a lot of it was um, left on the cutting room floor. All the dialogue. Uh, well, I just felt like it was hacked, hacked right down to the bone. Really, I don't even want to know what they what they edited out of it. I don't know that it felt hacked to the bone to me. It felt more like they wanted to shoot as little dialogue as possible for dubbing purposes. Well, interesting. Uh, one of the things I do know about this film is that this was uh, Schwarzenegger's last film with Dino De Laurentiis. That was a wise career decision. But here's why, allegedly. 
allegedly, here's the story, mm-hmm. is that uh, Dino De Laurentiis called Schwarzenegger for uh, what he said was going to be a cameo in the film. <laughs> and uh, Schwarzenegger, as a favor to De Laurentiis, showed up, and but his one week on set turned into four weeks. <laughs> and it wasn't until after the movie was fully edited and released... Yeah. Or, or on the verge of being released, that it became clear that due to clever editing uh, techniques, uh, he'd been moved from a cameo role into a starring role, uh, and then subsequently ended his career uh, with De Laurentiis. Um, apparently, at the at the premiere, Maria Shriver, Arnold Schwarzenegger, I think it was her his wife at the time, yeah, uh, told him, "If this doesn't kill your career, nothing will." And this must have stung because this comes out the same year as Terminator. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's like the highs and the lows of Schwarzenegger's career are both contained within 1985. Or was Terminator 84? Terminator might have been 84, actually. I'm not sure. Yeah, I can't remember. But, like, if, remember. If they fall really close together. And so it's like, he has this, like, period of greatness. And then also, his what he, I mean, he himself thinks this is his worst low. I mean, Red Sonja, I don't think, had any effect on his career at all. I mean, maybe because no one saw it. <laughs> I don't think so because what was his follow-up film to this? Uh, was it Commando? Yeah, I think it was Commando. Yeah, and in Commando, you know, definitely set him on the path that the '80s really took him. And uh, so, for me, like Red Sonja is a movie that, yeah, like I thought it was terrible the first time I saw it, just absolute garbage. And my recollection was that it looked really cheap, like almost like a grade school production. Uh, watching it this time. Uh, maybe it's the DVD transfer was better this time. I don't know. It just looked a little better to me. Uh, you could tell they didn't empty out the bank for this one. Uh, but it didn't look awful. To me, the problem is more issues of tone. Because it's fairly R-rated. Uh, we were arguing whether it was an R-rated or like a PG-13 or something. But it it definitely has like the harsh kind of violence. And like there's a rape yeah. bit at the start. There's a There's a needlessly gratuitous topless dancer in a uh, scrying device so they're really appealing to like a young male audience with this movie but then they throw in ernie reyes jr as like this little prince a tiny circle yeah (laughs) yeah very obviously inspired by short round like a year earlier in temple of doom but i mean it creates this weird tonal issue where you have like you know pulpy red-blooded kind of action hero stuff happening Mixed with, like, hijinks with a screaming child. Yeah, to be honest, uh, I, I don't know if it was the worst Schwarzenegger film or not. Um, what I can say with relative certainty is that it was probably the worst acted uh, Schwarzenegger film I've seen. Like, the... Um, I don't know if it was just bad script writing, but I feel like it was probably a bad script yeah. and bad acting all around. Yeah, it just doesn't feel like... Anyone involved in this was creatively invested in it in any way. Well, maybe Bridget Nielsen. Yeah, well, I mean, this was definitely an early star vehicle for her. Her career never really went anywhere, though. I mean, you know, she did Cobra, and she was obviously in Rocky Four, Beverly Hills Cop 2. Yeah, yeah, but it just seems like she was never launched as the star that this movie, at least, was trying to position her as. Now, do you think that this movie shows signs of promise of her being an action heroine? Well, it's hard to say. It's one of those movies that, I mean, it's clear that somewhere along the process, um, there is an issue with execution. Uh, <laughs> and uh, whether it was, because it's not like, 
I mean, Fleischman's Fleischer rather is a good director. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't I don't know who the script writers were, but oh, you mentioned yeah, was... yeah, George McDonald Fraser, who was really long career, and the other one was a Clive Exton, who mostly wrote a lot of British television and British and some British movies. Okay, yeah, yeah and then I mean, you had um, I mean Paul Smith, who's I don't know. I wouldn't say well known, but he's uh, he had a long career playing heavies and villains. And... Yeah, he's done some stuff. Mm-hmm. He's in like uh, that movie Midnight Express, which is really good. He was Bluto and Popeye. Was he really? Yeah, interesting. I didn't know that. I never understood the ending of that movie, where like he was like suddenly changed into yellow clothes. And obviously it's because he's yellow and scared, but I never understood that as a child. I was like, I don't get it. I think the less said about Popeye, the better. <laughs> it's pretty well. Is Popeye better than this movie? No, no. <laughs> it's longer, that's for sure. Yeah, so that should answer the question right there. <laughs> These are the kind of movies that are, are um, they're like wedding speeches. Right. They're not that great, but they're short, so you can forgive them. Right. And as long as they have some like moments you can laugh at, you're, you're good. Yeah. yeah. Or they're train wrecks completely, in which case then you'll remember them too. Yeah, and then you're like, thank God that wasn't long. Yes. Where was the MC? Why didn't they turn the mic off? Yeah. So, I mean, based on this movie, would you have liked to have seen Bridget Nielsen headline more movies? Well, um, I would have liked to have seen her, you know, maybe get another chance. Uh, well, I guess she did. Uh, <laughs> did she blow you away in those other roles? <laughs> I got nothing against Bridget Nielsen. <laughs> she seems very nice. Are you just saying that because she could beat you up? Um, well, I were, she's, a, she's a fellow redhead, at least in Red Sonia. <laughs> I don't know if she is in her... I don't think so. <laughs> Damn. One thing that we both thought was strange about this movie is they position her as the lead, as this action heroine, who's apparently like the greatest fighter of all time. And in, in like throughout the movie, she's constantly saved by Schwarzenegger. You mean Calador? Yeah. You mean Con- what's his name again? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah no, um, <laughs> you know, I, this isn't a film. I know we've said this about some mm. of other of other Schwarzenegger films. Um you know, but this is not a film that I would necessarily put on the syllabus of a women's studies course. Uh, the gender politics in it are fascinating. Yeah, interesting. But um, it really does not like lesbians. No, that's no, clear right out I, of the gate. You know what? I had forgotten about how they made um, like the queen's homosexuality as part of her evilness. Isn't that all her evilness really is? Um, well, no, I mean, she was also power hungry and sure, murderous. But that seems to be the part they twist as being the most, like, horrendous, is off the bat. Like, she's trying to, like, wanted Red Sonya for herself, and Sonya attacked her. Yeah, I mean... And then she sicked her, uh, her, all her men on Sonya, which was disturbing. I think that's maybe a little farther than, you know, most lesbians would go. <laughs> just a little just a little (laughs) anyways i mean i just i just thought it was interesting because you don't normally see that one you don't normally see homosexuality portrayed at all in these 1980s early 1980s films or in a film like this um although if if someone is going to be gay in an old movie it's generally villains very common throughout like alfred hitchcock's career that was always the case so i mean it, it it is a fact, but yeah, you're right. Like this wasn't something that like showed up in like Conan or whatever. Um, in, in generally, in sword and sorcery movies, this was not one of their go-to devices. No, there might be some sirens or some kind of temptress or something like that. But yeah, but um, I just thought it was interesting that it was just 
they just tied it to how evil she was. Yeah, it's very strange. And the movie has all this weird gender stuff going on because Red Sonia, you know, after she's attacked by all these men and raped, um, she basically swears off men in her life at all. But, like, characters keep telling her, like, you need to find a man to love and all this sort of thing. Uh, and then they introduce this weapon, the uh, the talisman, which there's a great line where um, they say, so it is true, only women may touch it. <laughs> and followed by a line where a guy says, take it out. <laughs> I miss I miss that. Um, yeah, I mean, the, ta- the talisman, uh, clearly, you know, it was a slow day in, in set design when they made the talisman. <laughs> It kind of looks like a, a basketball with some paper mache yes. put on it. And um, that, uh, that... A green effect added later. Yeah, that terrible, terrible glowing effect that right. seems to permeate bad sword and sorcery movies. Right. Yeah, I don't know. As far as <laughs> Sonia, I've kind of lost my train of thought here. <laughs> <laughs> you take us away, Cam. Well, going back to the, getting back to like some of the gender stuff. I mean, the idea that only women may touch this great source of power, but it's uncontrollable. Meanwhile, Sonya, who is one of the, like the most powerful fighter around, is constantly saved by men. I, I don't really know what this says about women having any power. <laughs> it keeps saying like women are powerful, and hey, at least the queen contains the greatest of powers, you know, at her fingertips. But none of it can be controlled, and men will generally save the day. Yeah, and and Sonia's whole philosophy of, you know, she she has a, she's taken a vow to uh, never be with a man who cannot beat her in a fair fight. Yeah. And um, what does uh, what does Conan say? He says, "If you yield only to conquerors, prepare to be conquered." <laughs> Like okay, that's how you met your fiance, wasn't it? With that line, <laughs> yeah, no, it's, yeah, exactly. I don't think so. It's probably a meatball sob at Subway. <laughs> um, now let's talk about Schwarzenegger. This is the Schwarzenegger podcast. How is Schwarzenegger in this movie? Is this a good? First off, I guess two questions. One, is this a Schwarzenegger movie? And B, how is Schwarzenegger in it? Well, again, it is a Schwarzenegger movie, but if that story that I said earlier is true, yeah, because um, it certainly seems that way. It certainly, he, he he acts as if he's there for a cameo or for a short role or one or two scenes. Yeah, and um, usually comes in after something interesting happens. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and uh, you know, and there's one scene where he uh, he does go to the cave to fight the killing machine. Uh, good name, guys, and. Uh, he yells Falcon over here, but he hasn't met Falcon yet. <laughs> so you gotta wonder what what exactly was going on with the editing and the script there. Yeah, I mean, I I guess I would agree it's a Schwarzenegger movie, but I kind of don't because it feels like Arnold Schwarzenegger is not. He's so off to the side of so much of this movie, and it doesn't feel like the movie gives him big sort of Arnie moments at all. He's definitely a presence when you look at the the you know DVD art. He's looming large over Bridget Nielsen. They're obviously selling it on him, but it doesn't feel like Arnie had the level of I guess creative input or presence that he had in any of his other movies. Like he he feels like an afterthought in a way he didn't even in like um you know Conan or Conan the Destroyer where he was still a headliner even though it was before his big you know terminator fame mm-hmm. yeah i mean he was in it enough i'd still call it uh yeah an arnold film but would you say this is an arnold film on the same level as like cactus jack slash the villain 
No, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't go that far. Okay. I'd say he was he was a little bit more more involved in it. Um but he was yeah, I mean his role was definitely reduced. He you know, he didn't really deliver too many lines that like classic Schwarzenegger lines and he would just kind of have awkward fight scenes and awkward romance scenes. Well, you say awkward fight scenes. Were there any good action sequences in this movie? You know what? Actually, there's another thing that I uh I had kind of I I my memory of it was that the the action scenes were really bad. Right. really slow a lot of the clearly <laughs> bad choreography where it's you know like swipe high swipe low yeah. swipe side and yeah. then stab the guard through the chest as he throws his hands in the air so there was maybe a little bit too much of that but there was also i thought some halfway decent choreography yeah i mean i didn't think the choreography was terrible it would be funny how they would show like a close-up of like schwarzenegger and nielsen then cut to like a faraway shot like across <laughs> a field where it's too obviously stuntmen you know a stunt woman doing like flips i don't know was it may have been a stuntman playing sonya who knows from that distance but i mean i just feel like the action while not horrible it didn't really feel like it had any energy to it it felt like the choreographed displays were fine but it didn't feel like there was any tension or any like real pizzazz or anything to the to the filmmaking in that regard i don't know i'd probably be they a little... quite long too <laughs> yeah they were long uh, I'd probably be a little bit more forgiving uh, than than you. There was at least two or three decapitations. True. Uh, um, a couple dismemberments. Yes. A lot of people like a lot of people lost their lives in the making of Red Sonia. Is that true? <laughs> That's true. I mean, you just look at the the sets were just littered with bodies at the end of every scene. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> they were honor killings because they were so depressed to be working on the movie. <laughs> um. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't, as an action movie, I think it's probably fine. I, I don't remember Conan the Destroyer. How does this compare, at least from your memories, to Conan the Destroyer? It's it's maybe not, it's along the same lines. I'd say maybe Conan the yeah. Destroyer is a little bit better, but um, I mean, Conan the Destroyer had the, and we'll, we'll get to that one of these days. Yeah, I'm looking uh, forward to that one. Yeah, I mean, Conan the Destroyer had the problem of following up Conan the Barbarian and then go but going to a PG-13 yeah rating um but had some of the same problems with the acting um i don't remember wilt chamberlain being particularly good in it what i know hard to <laughs> hard to believe yeah uh, um, wasn't mako in that one too yeah, yeah yeah and have and also having the same the same issues with of not really having any point just they're kind of going somewhere to do something right without any real explanation as to why the supporting casting is interesting to me because you have uh, in both the Destroyer and Red Sun, and you have these characters who are portrayed as very iconic, but in both cases they insist on like surrounding them with this like collection of supporting characters who really often dominate the screen time over the uh, the leads. Is, is the problem that these leads aren't interesting enough to carry the movie on their own? I think well, part of that. I mean, part of it is there. Uh, maybe maybe you agree or disagree, but. One, I think the supporting characters of Prince Tarn and Falcon w- were poorly written, very poorly written. <laughs> what? <laughs> uh, and not particularly well acted, um, yeah. or at least not uh, in the context of the movie. I don't think Paul L. Smith yeah. did a particularly bad job, but uh, he would have been fine in a goofy buddy comedy, yeah. uh, but n- maybe not in... Red Sonia, the sword and sorcery epic. Uh, 
and Ernie Reyes Jr. Love you, buddy. Loved Surf Ninjas. Yeah, Loved TMNT too. But this was not a good movie for Ernie <laughs> Reyes Jr. <laughs> Let's talk about uh, Tarn in particular, Prince Tarn. Um, this character, honestly, if I were Falcon, I would have strangled this kid in a river. <laughs> like. <laughs> He's unbearable. The idea that Falcon is going to put up with this kid for an extended period of time as his royal babysitter, especially when the kingdom has basically been destroyed, like you'd be just being like, you know what, kid, good luck. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't, I can't really see. I guess that's part of it. Is Falcon uh, was an honorable guard, and I guess, I guess, whatever. But I mean, Prince Tarn. I mean, his character had the issue that a lot of movies have that have. Uh, kids in supporting roles uh, where you have a kid who's usually cast on the basis of his taekwondo ability right and then um and just delivers every line as if it's got punctuation in the wrong places right and this was not an era where a child actor who wasn't a natural was going to be directed very well i mean spielberg was very good with kids around this period but for the most part when you encountered like a movie like this, or most kids' movies, frankly, where they cast children, they were very shrill. And Ernie Reyes Jr. personifies shrill in this movie. He's introduced in a scene where there's like a stone hand, and he's standing on the fingers, and Paul Smith is trying to pull this stone hand away from like a crevice and save him, I guess. I don't really understand how he got on that uh, statue of the fingers. <laughs> Did you understand that? No, there was. I think there was a lot of set pieces where they didn't really explain how they happened. They just kind of showed up. Yeah. But it, the scene basically consists of uh, Ernie Reyes Jr. screaming, just screaming, insults at uh, Paul Smith. <laughs> I mean, do you think Paul Smith was drinking every night? Um, well, you know what they say, a moment on the lips, a lifetime <laughs> on the hips. Um, Paul's not a trim man. <laughs> So I wouldn't be surprised if Ernie Reyes Jr. had, you know, led him to knock back a few wobbly pops. <laughs> I like the scene near the end where they reach the, you know, the kingdom or whatever. This movie's very linear. It's literally like they meet up and they're like, well, we got to go to the kingdom. So they go to the kingdom. <laughs> That's basically the movie. Yeah, what do they got to do in the kingdom? They got to get in the castle. Yeah. <laughs> what do they got to do in the castle? They got to get to the throne room. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, but, I mean... They get to the castle, and uh, they're like, well, one person has to stay outside as guard. I'm not really sure why. <laughs> like, what were they guarding against? No, I... I, I oh, you didn't, you didn't get... I mean, this is why this is why I watch movies with you, too. Apparently. Because explain. they were worried that the castle was going to be too dangerous. Right. And that if Prince Tarn went inside, he'd, get in, he'd be in more danger. No, but originally they wanted to leave Falcon outside. And then Falcon said, I'm not staying out here. No, but it was a ruse to, oh, get, to get Prince Tarn to stay outside. Jeez, I'm like Prince Tarn myself. <laughs> Gee, I can't believe you. <laughs> Boy, am I a buffoon. <laughs> I, I wouldn't worry about it. I mean, there was a couple times in this movie where, honestly, I kind of I realized that I'd been zoned out for a couple minutes. <laughs> I think it's also that this movie is not good at conveying humor. And so when it was trying to be funny, I think I was just staring blankly at it, taking it seriously. <laughs> That's a very... I like I like phrases like that, really. Uh, you can tell the, the film critic in you. Oh, this film is not very good at conveying humor. <laughs> this movie is not funny. 
<laughs> it's really not. And it, it really kind of did make me chuckle, though, when, like, near the end of the movie, Paul Smith breaks into the enemy castle, and suddenly he turns into, like, a Three Stooges character, and he's also given, like, wisecracks. There was one part where, uh, I mean, I didn't understand a lot about Paul Smith's character, Falcon. Yeah. Um, but throughout a lot of the movie... He was carrying around a giant dinosaur bone that he was using to club people with. And I I missed the part. Did you pick it? When did he get that? I don't know. Did he have it from the beginning? I think so. I think so. At some point, I just realized he's clubbing people with a bone. <laughs> and then another point, And then at one point, he pulls a smaller bone out of his coat and like gives to Prince Tarn in a touching moment. And I just didn't, I just didn't really understand. <laughs> like, why use bones? It's not like swords are in short supply in this world. Everyone has a sword. Well, I, I think that's part of the heavy uh, archetype, right? Which okay. is, um, so if you're, you're going to do a sword and sorcery epic, you have to have, um, like, a big fat guy who's pretty slow, but also very strong and generally uses a club. Is it kind of like how Little John in Robin Hood is often portrayed as having a staff? Yeah, that's it. That's it. Yeah. Okay. So is he's is Paul Smith the little John of this movie? Maybe. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Who's, who's the Robin Hood then? Is it Tarn? Well, that's or why who's I was Red Sonia. Yeah. That's why I was hesitant to see <laughs> Bluto from Popeye is the little John of Red Sonia. <laughs> Or is, is Paul Smith maybe Friar Tuck? You know, there's some first-year film students out there, right? Like, this will be great for my three-page essay. <laughs> I'll use this as a reference. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Arnie Geddon. I was very confused about the killing machine. You referenced it earlier. It's a giant mechanical serpent. Um, uh, Ronald Lacey plays the uh, who was the one of the heavies, uh, one of the Nazi villains, the one who melted. In Raiders of the Lost Ark. And he's sort of the sidekick of uh, Queen Gedrin. And she tells him to, you know, unleash the killing machine. Again, original name. But and I'm, I'm kind of like wondering why they need the killing machine. when They've got this, the talisman, this weapon of indestructible power. Yeah, they use the talisman to create a storm to drive them into the Ichthian cavern. And then the killing machine doesn't come out until they try and steal a needlessly large pearl. What happens if they don't take the pearl? <laughs> I think that's what they're going to explore in Red Sonja 2. We can only hope. Yeah. And the thing is, the the pearl was taken actually by Tarn and Falcon. Like, what happens if Red Sonja doesn't wake up or whatever? Is it just the killing machine takes out the two sidekicks? Yeah, I guess she, she could just go out the front. And also, is it really a great idea to have a killing machine that only works in water? <laughs> Yeah, that's hidden in a cave that people only go to in a storm. Yes. What did you think of the killing machine sequence? Because I think this might be, to me, the highlight of the movie. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. It's actually interesting. Fun fun trivia fact about the killing machine. They almost weren't able to use that sequence in the film because um, I'm not sure if it was De Laurentiis or someone else involved with the program had uh, hired the machine and then filmed it without ever really getting the rights from the machine's uh, creator. Oh. And so it was uh, a last-minute 
Uh, last minute, they parachuted in the lawyers, signed some contracts, and just barely got it in before production. <laughs> they had to choose between the rights to the killing machine and the rights to Conan. <laughs> and they were like, we got we got to do the killing machine. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Uh, you know, I'm a real sucker for, frankly, anything involving like killer serpents or killer sea animals or whatever. So to me, the killing machine is really what I look for in a movie. It's sort of this amphibious thing tr- trying to kill people in a water setting. But I was a little bummed that no one was killed by the killing machine. Yeah, and it took a while to establish that it was a machine. Yeah, I didn't really understand that, because it looked fake. But so did, like, uh, Queen Gedrin's, like, pet spider. So I can't tell at this point if it looks fake because it's a robot, or if it looks fake because it's really crappy. (laughs) Well, I think it was actually a robot. Was it a robot? I mean, I guess. It was, like, metal, right? Because they were clanging swords off of it. So... Yeah, I mean, I thought the, to be honest, the killing machine scene, or the, I remembered it as a water, I forgot it was a killing machine, I thought it was right. just a water serpent. Yeah. Um, but uh, that is one scene, the one, probably the one scene that really stuck out in my head uh, of watching Red Sonia, and I remember actually thinking, this scene is not very good, it's really boring yeah. and slow. And actually watching it, I was, I thought, ah, oh, you know. It's okay. it's okay. Yeah, I mean, there's also that fight in Conan the Destroyer with, like, the big creature. With Dionysius. Yeah, and I think I might prefer this one to that. I'll be interested to revisit that one. But I think I enjoyed this a little more. Um, getting back to the fact we're saying it's a robot, why does it matter if it's blinded? Well, that's where it's... Uh, well... It seemed in agony. Well, it certainly made agonized noises. It started doing, like, crocodile death rolls. Um... Maybe it wasn't a machine. Maybe they just <laughs> called it the machine, but maybe it actually was a clever nickname. Oh, like the killing machine was actually like just the name of their pet lizard creature. I think we're overthinking this. I think we are. I th- because I, I don't think anyone involved with this really thought about it at all. Um, is there anything else about this movie that kind of stands out at you? Um, I actually thought that the, I thought the costumes were pretty well done. Yeah, I agree. Um, and I actually thought, not all of them, but I thought a lot of the sets... Were actually fairly well done as well. I really like the candle room. Like, a lot. Yeah. <laughs> a lot. Hear that, ladies? <laughs> Cam likes the candle room. I just really enjoy when, you know, you watch a movie, um, you know, back in the, the 80s, they went all out on their set decoration. Even a cheapy movie like this, which obviously had a lower budget than like an A picture, someone had to light all those candles. They had to keep them lit for each scene. You know, there's a continuity person watching candles at all times to make sure that this looks as good as it humanly can. And I think it actually does look really cool. Nowadays, had they had the sequence, it would be all CG candles because it's just easier to control. Yeah, although they didn't really... uh, The reason for having all those candles... Okay, yeah, well, that part's a little... It's because the talisman apparently absorbs light. Right. Um, And I guess because they're in a land of perpetual darkness... They can't just leave it outside. Correct. So they have to put it in. Although it wasn't, sorry, and I'm just rethinking, because it wasn't perpetual darkness when they left the castle. Right. It was only when they went in. Yes. And even then it was pretty light out. (laughs) They just told us it was perpetual darkness. I mean, this movie watches like a bad Dungeons and Dragons campaign. Like the ones we had when we were in like grade eight. I never did that. No, yeah, no, no, sir. No, of course not. I so another sequence actually I liked. Um, 
This movie does something that actually, like, to compare it to things far more flattering than deserves to be uh, compared to. I'm thinking of, like, uh, Star Wars movies, the original Star Wars movies. No, 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 one of those. Or um, Mad Max Fury Road. Never heard of it. I like the idea of, like, silent world building, where you have, like, these sites that, you know, c- characters don't really comment on, but they're kind of there, and you wonder, like, how did that get there? The, the big uh, skeleton bridge. Yeah, I really that like that. Um, there's also that the weird architecture of, like, that place... Arnold um, is keeping Sonya's uh, sister when she goes to visit her on her deathbed. That's right. Or the big, uh, the big arena where Sonya's training with the the big warrior statue. Yeah, I really like how the, you know those locations are just there, and characters aren't like, well, you know, here's the mythical bridge of blah blah blah. It was created by a creature that you know was trying to crawl away from a volcano, or you know something like that. Like. I, I like that they didn't explain any of this stuff. It was just there. Yeah, and that's that's part of the reason why um, this movie can be sometimes hard to watch, is because it had a lot of potential. Yeah. Uh, it, well, it has a lot of potential, right? Yeah. Um, and you think about the, those that those great costumes, some of those great sets, and um, and then you throw in Prince Tarn, <laughs> and a couple of you know a falcon mugging for the camera and schwarzenegger and bridget nielsen just delivering their lines like they're made of wood yeah and uh and you think ah you know they kind of they missed a great opportunity here yeah i mean i no, i i agree like it's frustrating because i think a good uh red sonya movie could be made but I feel like they treated this movie very much the way that a lot of female-led superhero movies have been. You know, Catwoman and Elektra, particularly. Or uh, Supergirl, or actually. Supergirl. Yeah, where they cut the budgets on them. They attach kind of shitty talent to them uh, on behind the camera. And then the movie comes out. No one wants to see it because it gets terrible reviews and it looks like crap. And they bomb. And then studios say, see, people don't want you know female-led superhero movies. I feel like that was kind of the case with Red Sonja. I think there was far more effort put into like the original Conan the Barbarian than they ever dreamed would be, you know, they would do for this movie. Like this movie felt to me like kind of like a, well, let's crank it out. Maybe we'll make some money opening weekend, and that'll be that. Maybe, uh, maybe it does not feel ambitious. Really, I think. Um... <laughs> really. Sorry, we can't both just be ragging on this movie the whole time. I'm not, I mean, I'm not ragging because I think it had its legs cut out from it even before they probably rolled film on it. Like, I don't think anyone involved with this was like, let's make a great Red Sonja movie. I think Bridget Nielsen was. <laughs> Maybe her. <laughs> now, well, she did win the Razzie for Worst Actress, and while I think the Razzies are generally a complete joke, I would like to have a discussion. She's the only one in this cast that won the Razzies. Let's rank the central performances. So we'll cut aside, you know, supporting characters like Ronald Lacey, who plays like the sidekick. What He doesn't really do anything that interesting. But, you know, between Sandal Bergman and then, you know, the foursome who go on the journey, how would you rank the performances from best to worst? Um, it's I can't really get past Prince Tarn, to be honest. <laughs> so he's at the bottom for you. He's at the bottom. And the other three kind of float around there somewhere in the middle. Um, I think Sandal Bergman is really terrible in this movie. Yeah, she's not good. And she's really good in Conan, so that's the weird part. But I think this was... I don't know if she had any big films after this. I think this may have been her yeah, I remember swan song. Her, I saw her in the movie um, All That Jazz, but that was shot before this. I think that's... I've only seen her in like three movies. Yeah, if, if it wasn't this movie, it was only a... She was only around for a little bit after, and I think after that it was... Um, 
cable films and straight right. to video. Cynthia Rothrock movies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, for me, I, Ernie Reyes Jr. is at the bottom. Prince Tarn is just unbearable. He, he's awful. Well, I've actually, uh, sorry to interrupt you yeah. at, at your first level on a <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, go. five level list. But um, it's it, it's one of those things that having uh, a character like Prince Tarn in a movie, because, you know, maybe there wasn't a ton of money here. Right, but there was probably at least a few million bucks in, sure. <laughs> invested in this, and I gotta wonder at some point didn't a producer come out and just watch this kid act uh, and think no, no, like cut it, keep him in a fight scene, uh, yeah. and then we're gonna take him out of the movie. Like he didn't really add a lot to the film. Well, he did noise. Yeah, yeah, like it was like crossing Warwick Davis with Gilbert Godfrey. <laughs> And the thing is, more scenes revolve around Red Sonia and him, I think, than her and Schwarzenegger. Yeah. Yeah, like, they really want to give Tarn this arc that I did not care for. But, yeah, so, like, I put him at the bottom because I think he was absolutely terrible. Uh, Sorry, Ernie. I think I would put Sandal Bergman right above him. She's not a good villain, and I don't know how much of that is the fact she mostly just watches, you know, mystical television the whole time (laughs) and has no clear objective to what her plan is. Power. <laughs> Sando Bergman, I don't think, is one of the great, uh, you know, Laurence Olivier of actors types. Um, but she did uh, direct uh, The Seventh Seal. Sure. <laughs> but I mean, like, um, she's not an actress who I think could bring a lot of life to, like, nothing material. And I think she was working with pretty much the worst of the worst material one could really hope for, and I think it just takes her right down. I don't think she has what it takes to enliven it. So, I mean, she, yeah, she's next. And then, this is tough, because I think I would... I don't know if I'd put Bridges Nielsen next. I might say Paul Smith. <laughs> Paul will, Smith. I mean, uh, I, I think I would put Bridget Nielsen under Schwarzenegger. I don't think she's horrendous. I think she's pretty flat and doesn't you know, can't convey the emotion very well of the character, but I, I don't find her to be unwatchably bad in this movie. Yeah, no, I think that the, um, and it's, it's tough for me with Paul Smith, because I feel like I've seen him in some other stuff, and I feel like if at some point the director had just said, Paul, it's not that kind of a movie, man. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> stop acting like, um, like he plays kind of, uh, like a, a Jack Black, Chris Farley, yeah, like you know, a funny fat man kind of kind of role, and it just doesn't work in that movie, especially when you're next to that little kid. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I mean, Schwarzenegger, I guess, is the highlight of the movie in terms of acting, yeah. but he's not good. This is not Arnold. Uh, I think really invested in what he's doing. He he's kind of going through the motions a little bit, but he's still Arnold. Like he has a presence that most of the cast just doesn't have. Yeah, that's right. I was actually thinking about that as I often do when I'm watching Schwarzenegger movies is um, I think if you replaced Arnold with some other actor, I think this movie, if you think it tanked now, yeah, man, like... Like Lorenzo Lamas. Yeah, there's not there's <laughs> not a lot of actors that could pull, uh, pull off a role like that written that way. Yeah. And I think Schwarzenegger did what he could with it, but I... He certainly wasn't aiming for the Oscar on it. No, he was not. Um, there was one sequence, too, I want to talk to you about, which is the very end of the movie, the collapsing castle sequence. This, 
felt like such an anticlimax. Like, I could not have cared less about these characters walking out of this crumbling castle. It reminded me a lot of, remember Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull? Uh, you kind of go through that... Va- vaguely. That's not one I've watched well, a bunch of times. Yeah, but you remember there's the sequence where they have the big chase through the jungle on, the, on all the trucks, right? Yeah. And that's kind of the high watermark for action in that movie. After that, they come across the, you know, the, the, te- the Kingdom of the Crystal Skulls. And it's them, like, solving puzzles for, like, 15 minutes just to get to the chamber where the aliens are. And you basically just watch actors wander from puzzle to puzzle with, like, no tension, no pace... It's like, okay, pull the bags out, sand's coming out, now it tilts over, let's go to the next room. Okay, how do we get to the next room? And it's just like, who cares? Like, have them just walk into the goddamn room and face the aliens. Uh, It wasn't that bad. I mean, they're going through the castle, they're killing some guards, there's rocks falling everywhere. I'm talking more of the escape part. When they go in, that's okay. The actual, you know, battling Sandal Bergman and all her men, that stuff's kind of fun. I mean, when the actual, when that stuff's all dealt with and Sandal Bergman is plunged into the poorly rendered uh, lava. I mean, like, when they're um, trying to escape and it's just, like, bricks falling down in the foreground <laughs> and styrofoam, like, columns collapsing. Yeah, I, I it was okay. I mean, I, I agree. It probably, you know, it wasn't the big rock from Raiders of the Lost Ark. No, it was um, not. But at the same time, you know, I've watched a lot of movies where uh, things are collapsing and, you know, pillars block doors. And that was kind of more of the same. Were you invested in uh, Prince Tarn's selfless act at the end that saved the day? Actually, that's what really made the movie for me, Cam. (laughs) I thought that, you know, I know I've said a lot of negative things about Prince Tarn. But I thought his character and the acting was totally redeemed by that. No. Prince Tarn... (laughs) I didn't. I was really hoping he would die. I was hoping that they wouldn't be able to get him out, and that the final shot of the film would be uh, his marker over top of an empty grave. Here lies Prince Tarn, died honorable. <laughs> and then the movie, of course, ends with Schwarzenegger and Bridget Nielsen kissing. Schwarzenegger can do many things on camera, but laugh a romantic kiss is not one of them. No. Uh, well, not un- I find it actually uncomfortable to watch. <laughs> it's like watching porn with your parents. Like it's, just, <laughs> it's like something you just don't want to experience. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I agree. He's never been known as a romantic leading, no. leading man. Maybe in Twins? Yeah, maybe. True Lies? Yeah. Not this Maybe he one. got better at it. He got, he got better. He got better. He wasn't very good at it at this point. It's really awful. <laughs> okay, so I think that kind of wraps up Red Sonja. Tony, is this a movie, now that you've revisited it for the first time in a long time, that you could see watching again in the near future? Um, maybe not in the near future, but... Um... You wouldn't rule out watching it a third time or a fourth time or whatever. No, I wouldn't rule it out. Like I say, it is mercifully short, um, like a good wedding speech. Right. So, you know, if I came to somebody's house and uh, someone threw on Red Sonia uh, and I wasn't too tired, I might watch it. Right. But is it one that I'm going to go home right now and put on again? Probably not. Do you own a copy? Um, I don't think so. Yeah, I, did, I, I own most of the Schwarzenegger movies. This was when I had to go to the uh, video store to find um, I just couldn't be bothered buying it. I was like, there's no way I'm paying you know, for money for this. You know, I know you disagree with me on this, Kevin. They make this thing called the internet now. 
that I want to watch the bonus features. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, it's it's funny because I remember uh, when we were um, I forget which film we were watching, but I offered to bring it over on VHS. Conan the Barbarian. Was it Conan the Barbarian? I know exactly where you're going. Yeah, and you re- you refused. You refused to watch in the original glorious home video format, but um, but yeah, you still go to the video store to rent Ritz on you. Yeah, yeah, and actually I went for Conan too, and I got a copy where it wasn't actually formatted for widescreen televisions, <laughs> so it was that black box in the center of the screen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that didn't go over so well. It didn't really make a persuasive argument for my uh, loyalty to DVDs. It's amazing that you still belong to a video store. Yeah, I know. I, I really like having one close by, because they've got like tons of old action movies that I can go and grab. Like I, I really enjoy that. Because it doesn't occur to me, say, at home one night to be like, you know what? I feel like watching Cyborg. But I go to the video store and I'll wander the shelves and they've got like a three for five dollar deal for like a week. And so I'll just like grab like old Schwarzenegger or Van Damme movies or whatever. Chuck Norris. Like it's just, I just really like having one nearby. Thank God that there's still a requirement to launder money. That's right. Okay, well, that is Red Sonja from 1985. Uh, if you enjoyed listening to this, we want to hear from you. Send your thoughts and feedback to arniegeddonpod at gmail.com. Uh, you can also find me at uh, CambySmith on Twitter or at CambySmith.com or at the Star Trek podcast Subspace Transmissions. Tony. Yeah, you can find me, Tony G, uh, at arniegeddon.com and also check out our uh, great website, arniegeddon.com. That's right. So next episode, we're doing something a little bit different. Uh, it's not going to be an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. It's going to be in celebration of 10 episodes on the air. Right. Every 10 episodes or so, we're going to do an episode that tackles a film that doesn't necessarily have Arnold Schwarzenegger in it, but is related to him or his filmography. So next week, we're going to take a look at Predator 2. Starring Arnold Schwarzenegger's doppelganger, Danny Glover. Yeah, exactly. So I think that's going to be really interesting. We can kind of talk about, does that movie work without Arnold Schwarzenegger? So that should be a lot of fun. I think so. I can't wait. Okay, we'll be back with Predator 2. <laughs>